What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> Reinforced backing tape that had like the thread right. in it and all that. They used to have that sitting right there. They pulled that all out. Trying to make some money off of yeah. it. I know. Oh, well. All right. Well, let's get the podcast started. Cool. I'm Chase Winninger, host of the podcast, Lee McClellan, co-host. Hope everyone has a wonderful holidays. And today's guest is Monty McGregor. Monty, tell us about yourself. What do you do here? I am a malacologist. Or a muscle biologist. That's a fancy word. I, yeah, I say that sometimes. I say muscle biologist. Yeah, muscle biologist. People are like, what's a mal- malacologist? I tell everybody you're our muscle expert when I'm trying to describe them to you. And you've been on the podcast before, right? Yes. A long time. I think that was probably two years ago. It's mm-hmm. probably more towards the front end than I the think back so. end. But, you know, so we probably have a lot of new listeners. So I want to set up who you are. And I'm not sure if you'd want to toot your own horn, but I'll toot it for you. I think that out of all of our biologists here, we have a lot of really good staff, but you're probably, in a way, the most accomplished, would you, would you say, Lee? Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as some of the work you've done with endangered species. Most, uh, known worldwide, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So just real quick, in a nutshell, tell me about some of the things that, you know, your program, you told me you've been here for 22 years, so some of the things that have been accomplished in the muscle program over that time. Well, um, when I first got here in 2002, um, basically, we hadn't been doing hardly anything with freshwater mussels Mm -hmm. Uh, we had contracted a few projects out to some researchers out of the state Um, uh, but muscle work had actually started sometime in the 60s and 70s back from Texas Fish and Wildlife we had some contract work with some professors down at Murray State University Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of one of those hit and miss things so when I got here one of the first things that I wanted to do was to establish a facility uh, to be able to do some conservation so I was looking for a place where we could build a hatchery for raising endangered freshwater mussels. Mm-hmm. And so I looked around the state to try to find a place and, you know, realized we had two other hatcheries in the state, one in uh, north of Frankfurt and one in eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, found out that there was a guy up at um, Moorhead at our Monte Clark hatchery that was actually doing some work with mussels. And, of course, I went to school at the place where he was working. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew him a little bit. So... uh just started looking around and decided to establish a, a facility where we could we could uh, do muscle conservation. Uh, we so we established the Center for Moss Conservation here in Frankfurt, mm-hmm. uh, over off the Forks at the yeah. Forks of Elkhorn, which which actually was one of the first hatcheries in the state, yeah. uh, built actually purchased in early 1900s um, there at an old mill dam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Macklin, first Macklin hatchery wasn't it? Macklin Dam, isn't that what they call that? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, I think so. That's right. That's so correct. It's basically, if people aren't familiar, it's between Frankfurt and Georgetown on 460. Mm-hmm. It's a, there's a little town down there called Forks of Elkhorn, right, where the North Fork and the South Fork flow mm-hmm. together. Yeah. And you're on the South Fork just about maybe a quarter mile before it hits North Fork. Yep. And there's that dam there. Right. And, uh, I mean, people can go fish there. There's a little bit one deep hole there. But the the, the center, it's, it, there's several large buildings there, but that's the, the Center for Mall's Conservation. That's and right. That's where you're you're located from. Right. We we started there because you know there was a fish hatchery started in the 40s there, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was one of the first places. In fact, the uh, f- our Pfeiffer hatchery was actually using it to hold stripers at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it'd be a great uh, great idea and a great place. We had you know a building or two that we could use, and uh, so we started it there. And then over the years, we've we've uh, improved and developed uh, our techniques and technologies and. We built some buildings there, a laboratory, uh, doing a lot of advanced research. But uh, the ultimate goal is to, you know, eventually to 
raise these really rare mussels. I'm talking the last populations on Earth. Yeah. And then and build mm-hmm. those populations up around the state. Uh, increase the the historic biodiversity in Kentucky. So, for instance, for instance, one of the goals uh, is, for instance, to take a river system where we've lost some species um, and put them back. Yeah. Uh, if we can do that, and so that's just one of the efforts that we've been able to do over the years, and it's taken a lot of work and a lot of time, and and uh, you know we've learned a lot over the years, and uh, but we're making some major advancements with mm-hmm. a lot of species. So, in a nutshell, what for somebody who might not know, like myself, I'm not sure. I'm 100 percent sure. What what is a mussel? What 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 are they? What do they do? Well, it's uh, a mussel. Sometimes people call them, you know, bivalves. Bivalves, yeah. And uh, but they're they're animals that they're invertebrates that live in the bottom of the river and the stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're filter feeders. Uh, one of the major functions they have is in uh, is to process algae. Uh, mm-hmm. and bacteria in fact they can eat they eat uh, bacteria which can harm us mm-hmm. you know is their food source like a blue green or something mm-hmm. some of those. well the blue green sometimes can hurt them as well oh, okay but just normal bacteria that's in the streams and rivers uh even you know e coli yeah fecal coliform mm-hmm. bacteria you know they can eat that and uh reduce contaminants that hurt us so anyway they remove all these suspended solids even silt and things like that from the water and then they, they take the food out of it and anything they don't want, they just dump it on the bottom. Yeah, there's a great video that I've we've used with some of the things we've done with you, but it's basically a time lapse of two fish tanks, and they both have really dirty, cloudy water. One of them has mussels in it, one of them doesn't, and it uh, it's night and day difference how fast the one that mm-hmm. just has a couple of mussels in it clears up versus the other one. I mean, the time lapse really shows how they filter through that water, and it's amazing that something you know that doesn't really look like it's doing a whole lot can actually cycle that much water through it and, and clean it so i mean so that their function is essentially to clean the water for us right right there are natural filter feeders and in fact if you uh historically you know three four hundred years ago before you know we started changing all the rivers and stuff uh you know there were millions of mussels per mile mm-hmm. you know in these rivers and streams and and the ohio river if you if you went back to the ohio river back in let's say the 1800s uh and you were in cincinnati you could walk across the river less than 18 inches deep yeah. on muscle beds. Mm-hmm. There were oh, so wow. many muscle beds. They were like the road that mm-hmm. people used to cross the river. So wow. And, uh, and, and, and even then, at the same time, the fishing was so great that people could just take out pans at certain times of the year and just dip fish out of the water. That's nice. So we don't have that kind of environment now. The, the Ohio River now averages over 20 feet deep yeah. mm-hmm. uh, throughout, the, throughout the places. And so the so the you know the historic ability of mussels to fl- clean our water was a lot greater than it is today. I've heard that the the, the Ohio River used to average <clears throat> two and a half feet um, over the over its course, and now it averages twenty five. So essentially, ten times as deeper, twenty feet deeper. So I'm sure. And you know that's something else. One of the questions I had for you was what eats mussels because i think of raccoons because you see them on the bank, and I think of catfish because I know people will target mussel beds when they're fishing for blue cats. And if you look in the back of a blue catfish's throat, they kind of have those crunchers. I think those are made to, to crunch and help digest mussels. But so it, we have, you know, the Ohio River's changed so much that now it's not just covered in mussels, but instead people are searching for and targeting mussel beds to try to figure out where the fish are going to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons that 
the the catfish goes and eat them is they're linked to the catfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, mussels use a host yeah, okay. to complete their life cycle. So a freshwater mussel that's living on the bottom of the Ohio River, in it's order for a blue cat for a host to, to complete its life cycle, it has to connect its larvae, which is like the caterpillar stage of a butterfly. So the caterpillar stage of the mussel has to come in contact with the fish host. And then once it does that, it can live on the fish for two or three weeks, and then the fish move up and down the river and then drop them off and then... A uh, few year, two or three years later, they start reproducing and complete that cycle, and and the mussels can live some some species, you know, twenty to fifty years. It's not yeah. uncommon at all. That was one of the coolest things that when I first talked to you, I, it's been years now, but I didn't know anything about mussels. I, I mean, either. I just knew that that hey, that's a mussel. I could say that's a mussel. I didn't know anything beyond that. But one of the first and most fascinating things that I learned when talking to you down at the mussel lab, or just filming a video with you, I can't remember what we were doing was the fact that each mussel has a specific fish host. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of these species have gone extinct, right? Is because of the fish hosts have also kind of gone away. And that's where that kind of revolutionary research that you did, where you mm-hmm. brought back those endangered species, you mm-hmm. figured out a way to artificially mm-hmm. do that, whereas nobody yeah, else I, had done that. I have that, that so. on my notes asking about that. Yeah, well, <laughs> so tell, me, tell me just a little bit about that since we talked about the blue cats and the, and the hosts. So each each mussel has a specific fish host, and some of these fish have gone extinct or gone away. How, how did you uh, make that work without the fish? Well, um, you know, I have to give credit to my former colleagues that in in the past that that kind of thought about this kind of stuff but really you got to go back to the early maybe 1920s mm-hmm. 1930s uh the u.s bureau of fisheries which is the, you know now the u.s fish and wildlife service they realized in the turn of the night you know 1900 or so that muscle populations were de- really declining at a rate that alarming rate mm-hmm. species were going extinct in 1900 and so they started working on trying to figure this stuff out um they were trying to raise them in captivity. They were doing things that we're doing today. And then, you know, of course, we had some problems. You know, they had World War One, World War Two, Those kind of things interfere with a lot of research sometimes in, mm-hmm. in wildlife management. But anyway, so a guy in Missouri basically had, had an ideal that he could skip the fish host using some kind of a nutrient solution in a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. And he said he had developed a technique. And this was in like 1933. Wow. So uh, there really wasn't much reported about it so we didn't really know what was going on so so another guy in 1980 read some of that article that he'd done two-page article in 1933 picked it up and said well, maybe i can try it now and he and he actually is the one that developed it his name was dr robert hudson okay. he's in south carolina he worked with tennessee valley authority and he actually figured out a way to, to skip the fish host stage in a petri dish well you know 40 years later uh no one had really taken this technique and really made it work for conservation. Mm-hmm. Large scale. Yeah, there was only 19 species in early 2000s that had ever been transformed into petri dish. So, a lot of people had just abandoned the ideal, but basically said, "Well, it, they couldn't get it to work. We couldn't get them to raise, raise them in captivity." So, in 2004, I was able to secure a grant to kind of start this work, mm-hmm. and so I picked it up, and then I decided to take and modernize it. And the way I did that was. You go to a university, you get a Ph.D. student, you get a committee of five or six really experts in a lot of different fields like cell culture and physiology, ecology and all that stuff. Put our heads together and work as a team to try to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, 2010, six years later, we've got a good technique mm-hmm. uh, that, that at least advanced us way ahead of what was done 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So since then, we've refined the technique even more. We've got things to work a lot bit, lot better. 
and and our probably our best success story with this technique was the golden riffle shell and this has gotten some national publicity for stuff we've done with this but basically there was a species in virginia mm-hmm. where i used to work so i had a good connection to this species and what happened with this species was there was a spill that occurred yeah, I remember this. I 1999 this. Yeah. to 2000 somewhere around there and it had pretty much wiped out about seven miles of the, the fauna uh, so all the fish, all the crayfish, all the mussels were all killed. Yeah, we, we've had similar spills here. Mm-hmm. Maybe not 100% kills like this one could have been. But. So anyway, so this was the last population of this golden riffle shell. So 10 years later, 15 years later, they're down to four individuals oh, wow. in the wild. Hmm. This is no place else found. So basically, they had a one or two years left, and they came to me and said, hey, you, would you like to try to see if you can transform this? muscle in in the petri dish because we can't get them to work with the fish because they're too difficult Mm -hmm. so i gave it one shot and we got 1600 juveniles oh wow nice and then a year later uh i was able to go back to virginia where i used to work with the virginia game and fish which is now the department of wildlife resources and was able to release several hundred of these things back into four locations to basically save this species from extinction Mm -hmm. so to date no more individuals have been found in the wild other than the ones we reproduced. Oh, so you tagged them, you marked them. They're all ma- they're marked and tagged and released, but no no more ad- no additional live adults have been found in the population. So it's pretty much confirmed that if that wouldn't have been done, that they would have gone. They would have the went extinct. extinct. And it was only because of this in vitro technique, this this technique we use where we're, we're culturing them in a petri dish, basically was out able to do that and i can tell you other there's other stories of another species the catchpaw is the same way Mm -hmm. one population left in northeastern ohio uh we started working with those in 2012 Mm -hmm. so 10 years later we've already released over 5,000 in the wild at nine locations uh and we have several more thousand that are going out the next couple years so we're really making a dent with using this new technology but honestly the where'd you reintroduce the catchpaw the cat's paws have been reintroduced in the green and the licking in Kentucky, uh, a couple of places in Ohio, a, a river in Tennessee, and the duck. Have you went back to see if they're doing okay? They are doing well in all the sites. Yeah, I think I, think yeah, I, think I remember. I wrote about this. I just yeah. trying to. It's, I think when we went out and filmed with you when you were doing uh, surveys mm-hmm. in the green, where you took the one meter grid, and mm-hmm. you, right. I think the, the, I that was that one of the muscles peak. that was mentioned. The goal, the goal is if we can if we can put them at you know seven to ten locations mm-hmm. and get a couple thousand at a site. Uh, then we can go back to those areas fairly easily and get animals that are reproducing to be able to raise more. So here's my question, and I hadn't thought of this question until you know I was just listening to you speak there. Um, I would think that with other species, only having four, um, maybe that's because they're in the wild, but only having four of something wouldn't be enough. Pressure. <laughs> well, it seems like genetically they might not be diverse enough yeah. to have created yeah, a population. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So how does that, does, is, I guess, four uniquely genetic individuals versus all being somewhat related? I mean, so how does that work? Can you create a population from just four? Or is that genetically, or are they, you know, too similar? To well, I mean, in a, in a situation like that, that's all you have. Yeah. yeah. So, so. We, you know, we can't add more genetic information yeah. than what's out there in the wild. But we're able to take and capture all the genetic variation that's there. Okay. So, so if one animal naturally would reproduce itself in its lifetime, and we can produce you know, a 500 from that individual, it's going to capture all the genetic ver- variability that the animal so has. So you're creating yeah. variation. So, yeah. so, so yeah. our juveniles, what we found is, is um, with some with the cat's ball, for instance, we we start with, you know, 20 to 50 animals is all we have. Mm-hmm. And so the juveniles that we, we are 
reproducing, we'd look at the genetics of them compared to the original female. And what we're finding is we're capturing more genetic variation. So therefore, the juveniles that we're raising have more genetic variability than any one of those <clears throat> animals that we had. And then the next, the next generation. The more. next generation, can, you know, can breed improperly and to keep that variation up. Now, that's not going to be the case for every species. Some cases we're we're at a bottleneck, mm-hmm. and there's not anything we can do about it. Mm-hmm. But we are at least seeing some progress that we are not hurting anything worse in most cases. But again, when you have three or four animals left, yeah, you know, we don't have a lot of options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we we also know that <clears throat> if we can raise some, and then there's maybe one or two left in the wild, we can introduce those back, mm-hmm. and those they'll breed with those in the wild, yeah. and they'll it takes a couple generations, but they'll correct some of those genetic problems. Yeah, because if there were four known in the wild, chances are there were one or two unknown in the wild, or three or four unknown in the wild. Maybe that'll get mixed in because you can't find everything. Mm, right. Right. I mean, it, it's hard, and there is a specific reason we're here to talk today. Um, uh, some somewhat bad news, but. Before we get to that, I wanted to ask just more facts on mussels. So I think something you told me in the past was the biodiversity. You're talking about the biodiversity of Kentucky. Now, the Green River. Now, that is the most biodiverse ecosystem in Kentucky, right? One of the most in the world, correct? It is. It has over 70 species of freshwater mussels. And that compares to Europe, I think, in a way. Europe has like, what, 17 or 19 total? Less than about a dozen species. So they have have 12 species, about a dozen species in all of Europe and the Green River. 70 in Green River and, wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I've always thought, and you know, it's it's fun. I love the green. Yeah, the green is a, usually, if you get it on a good flow, you kayak down it, it's a pretty crystal clear Mm -hmm. um, waterway. And you can see the bottom for most of it because it's, you know, two, three feet deep. And when you float down the green, you can look down at the bottom and you can see Muscles. All those mussels under you, and you can see, um, I saw a big bottle, uh, what is Bo- it? Bottle, bottle brush, bottle brush crayfish. Crayfish. Yeah, I saw one of those last year for the first time in Green. I've not seen, I've wanted to see. I remember uh, uh, Richie Kessler and Dave Sheffitt did a piece on that years ago, and they found a couple of monster yeah. bottle, that, that was bottle a, brush. That's a one, what last year is one way that I knew I was starting to get older, is because when I was floating down the Green, I was with my, my girlfriend, and I saw that bottle brush crayfish on the bottom, and I jumped out of my kayak, and I wanted her <laughs> to see it, right? And I saw it go up under this slab rock. And so I reached down, and I was just going to flip that rock up so I could maybe show her this crayfish. And when I did, I tore an IT band in my wrist trying to lift that rock. And that's when I was like, oh, starting to get old. <laughs> just trying to flip a rock like I've been doing my whole life. And all of a sudden, I've got that. They are very large crayfish. In fact, one time I was on the Barren River, and uh, it was pretty clear as well. And I saw this look like a giant lobster walking yeah. down the middle of the river. I know. They and are. So I, I, mean, get out, I get out and look at it, and it's like a seven-inch crayfish. Oh, they're monster. And just like he's yeah. the boss, and no one's going to bother him. And I'd say a muskie's big enough to do eat. Do they eat crayfish? I'm I'll, sure they I'll do. I bet you a muskie would love to eat a bottle, yeah. a bottle brush crayfish. That's a big old meal, right? I know. I, I mean, mean, I like lobster. <laughs> I, I, do, yeah. I, I bet I've looked for him big time when I floated. I have not seen one yet. That's a goal of mine is to I've find seen one. Seen the one, and then after I saw that one, about my next two or three trips down the green, my eyes were glued to the bottom all the time. Anywhere I could see the bottom, I was looking. Well, I could take and show you anytime you want to. I know I've seen them all the time. They like big I know slab what rocks. For. They they like to live under the slab rocks. Yeah, and I'm I'm almost convinced that that big rock I tried to lift and flip so I could see that cray. I'm almost convinced that, that wasn't a rock. That was just the earth. Yeah, for Charlie, like yeah, that rock must have continued into the ground for mm, way past totally, I could yeah. see because I I couldn't budge that thing. And same thing with the hellbenders, right? So similar right. type. Um, now the bad news, unfortunately, 
is kind of why we're here. A little bit of why we're here. The last time I was uh, with you, Monty, was a year ago, year and a half ago. I looked back at the date. It was March of 2021. We did a video on zebra mussels because they'd been found in moss balls that people put in their mm-hmm. fish tanks and aquariums. And we were trying to tell people, hey, don't dump your, your fish tanks or your aquariums or anything into waterways. You know, you need to... Uh, basically clean them with bleach or a bleach solution or or completely dry them out before you dispose of these moss balls because they have zebra mussels in them and this could be a really bad deal well now tell me what tell me what's going on well i mean zebra mussels are not new to kentucky yeah uh, you know they came in in the early 90s did we not find them in a new lake here recently or something yeah. like that yeah, yeah. We, you know, we, we got them in the williamstown lake uh, okay. in fact we got one of our fisheries biologists had had uh, sent me an email saying, "Hey, there's there's some zebra mussels from this guy found some mussels and on his ladder and uh, wanted to confirm that's what they were." Mm-hmm. So I went up to the lake to take a look at it, and for, sure enough, they were they were pretty much present throughout the whole lake. Yeah. Uh, it's a small lake, around 300 acres or so, uh, but they were pretty much established. Uh, um, I only saw some mature adults, so that means they haven't been there very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to watch them. Uh, actually, put out some monitors this winter, this spring. Uh, so we can kind of check to see how they're how they're doing, if they're going to take off, if they're going to uh, get really bad, or they're going to stay kind of low n- numbers. And that's one of those that we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other lakes in Kentucky that we've had them in in the last 15, 10, 15 years that have just shown up, like Dewey Lake. And, mm-hmm. uh, they typically, zebra mussels are in the <clears throat> Ohio River, mm-hmm. uh, the Kentucky River. I know they're... My first assignment was with the Kentucky River fish kill after the wild turkey fire in 2000. Yep. And... It took all the suspended solids and sugars out of the water, so the Kentucky River was gin clear, and the whole bottom was nothing but zebra mussels. I mean, everything was encrusted. Hmm. It was, yeah, it was, and they and they can and they can get really really high numbers um, compared to other native mussels, and they're small; they're about an inch long or so. Uh, they have a really high capacity for fl- filtration. Uh, they can attach themselves to solid rocks uh so any hard surface is what they really need and that includes the bottom of people's boats and ladders like you said but i think the one that it was kind of painting the at least the way i understood it was kind of like pipes and uh intake valves and Mm -hmm. things like that yeah they can really screw those where they get in there and they just completely clog them up and there were some some uh photos we used uh, some demonstrations in that video we did back in march of 21 where you could take a, a pipe like an intake valve and cut it in half and it doesn't look like you could get a drop of water through there right. it's so packed full of zebra mussels so i could see how that could create issues all up and down mm-hmm. well the, the zebra mussels are wa- a lot different than the native mussels so they they uh have a free swimming larvae so they have when they reproduce their larvae swims around in the water column for a couple weeks mm-hmm. So they can get moved around really fast. Oh, so that's how they get in these water pipes. Is they'll mm-hmm. they'll get drawn in from the currents, and then they'll they'll stick themselves to the side of the pipe and start growing. And then thousands of them later, and they've clogged the pipe up. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was the number one problem up in the Great Lakes when they first got in in the late 80s, early 90s, was the water intake structures were getting so full they'd have to they'd have to shut them down. Mm-hmm. So it had a huge economic impact, uh, and uh, more so than they were in Europe. In Europe, they kind of they were there beforehand, and they kind of built around them. So now we had to start doing that here in the in the states. We had to build like double intake structures: one open, one closed. 
when one would fill up, they'd shut it down, open the other, and clean it out, and it was just mm-hmm. a constant, constant so mess. That's like twice as much engineering and installing, and then maintenance work yeah. that shouldn't even be happening because right. now you're having to shut down and clean and shut down and clean. But in Kentucky, they pretty much are found where there's barge traffic. Uh, okay. that's how they're spread. But they're also <clears throat> spread you know, on boat holes, um, trailers, you know, anything that's in the water for any significant amount of time um, doesn't have to be that long. That's where they get in, and uh, and so people need to make sure they clean their boats. And and uh, in fact, their zebra mussels are still spreading in the country. Uh, in fact, there's some um, check stations out west where they're they're stopping boats, ten thousand boats a year or more, checking their trailers, checking their boats, and finding you if you have them on there if you haven't cleaned them off because they're so serious about them getting mm-hmm. in the water out there. Um, out west they are out west so they don't have them in some areas that way the northwest typically is devoid of them right now but they're spreading just they're inching their way and it's taking them 30 you know 30 years or so to get out there Mm -hmm. but they're they're slowly spreading still and again it's just where they they can hop on a boat uh just imagine a boat sets in the water all Mm -hmm. on the you know for several months during the summer and then they get on the boat and then get it or on the motor or wherever. And then the motor goes out and, and goes and goes to another lake and sits there for any length of time or just gets in the water and they drop off and then they get established. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, there's there's multiple ways they could have gotten Williamstown Lake. They could have come in from Lost Balls. They could have mm-hmm. come in from a yeah. boat hole. From, I would say most mm-hmm. likely a boat hole. Most sense. likely. Because Lost Balls, I mean, that's just, that's kind of a, right. We were trying to warn people because pet stores were literally kind of, accidentally selling zebra mussels to people right you know and that's not a good thing but the, no. the transporting it by boats and trailers makes a lot of sense to me. And, in, and in the summertime you know so let's say june and july that's when the larvae are swimming around in the water okay, I was so if you have so you if you get a you know some water from the lake yeah. and you have some fish in it or something or, or your live well and you know and that's that's where they're at it's like and, peak uh, boating season yeah. peak fishing season is when they they're out and about. So and and that's a, you know another big message is, and not just for zebra mussels but for Asian carp, is uh you know don't don't dump bait. Yeah. Don't, we don't want people taking bait or water from one water body and tr- moving it somewhere else. So don't go catch your. It's your, not evil to toss your bait over in the weeds or something. A bird will eat it or whatever. Other than dumping it in the lake, don't you think? Yep. If you have some left over, they can. Or, they can. So if you're at the lake, I give it away sometimes too. It's like, hey, you going fishing? Take this, you know. Yeah. But, I'm uh, fine with dumping that on no the problem. ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't say enough about if people or people care about their fishing in their lakes. Mm-hmm. This is really important because once they get in a lake, it can change that whole lake. How long does your boat, uh, refresh the listeners, need to stay out to, like, say you you went to a, say you went to Williamstown, you're like, oh gosh, I, how long do I let my boat dry before I can put it in? I mean, they safely? they can live out of water for two or three weeks. Okay. What about in the winter? So this Friday we've got bad bad cold temps coming. Mm-hmm. Most people winterize their boats or keep them in a garage or something like that. But what zebra mussels obviously meant to be in the water. So if they were out of the water through the winter um, or like in real oh, cold Oh, yeah, that, that would or, kill them for sure. The freezing temperatures, they can't handle at all. Yeah, because they just freeze. And it, it's just a matter of time if they're out of the water before they would die. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, it, you know, but, but if you're short term yeah. and it's in can the summertime. Can you spray like bleach or anything on, on your I mean, boat? You can, you know, again, you know, high pressure water, hot water, you know, is a lot safer way to do it. And, yeah, uh, but there are definitely... A lot of different ways you can clean your boats and stuff like that and keep them clean and um, but again just let them dry out making inspecting them your live wells your, you know all that kind of stuff you know the better they are the drier they are the less likely that that's going to happen again just understanding the, the life cycle of the zebra mussel a little bit so if you know there's a little larvae swimming in that you can't see mm-hmm. then it's very important to get rid of that water and dry everything out yeah 
the adults physically you can see you can pressure washer those off and and just pay attention you know, if you've got them on your boat that means you've probably been in the lake a long time yeah you know uh typically people that are in and out of the lakes and stuff <clears throat> you know they don't get time to stick on their boats yeah, unless so they you, get caught in some weeds on their you know things like that people can, who dock their boats more yeah. than then, people who have a slip you know somewhere and they keep their boat in the water versus people who trailer it there and go fishing for a day and then trailer it back they need to worry about the water probably more so than the mussels but the yeah, people who right. leave the boat so where did uh, I, I heard this before but i can't remember i know that zebra mussels came here because of barge traffic mm-hmm. right where but where did they originally come from they come from like uh, black and caspian yeah. sea over that's in europe right. that's right uh, which are freshwater lakes mm-hmm. uh so ballast systems yeah yeah well basically there you know if you look in europe and just look at the maps and stuff look at all the canals they have and you know the ability of barges to move but what happened was i think and this is what most of the researchers out there think was the reason they didn't come earlier is because the speed of the boats from from the that part of the world to north america to the great lakes uh was was took more than three weeks or so till the late 80s and and then barges were improving their technology their their motors were better they could they could go longer distances faster mm-hmm. uh so it just the timing was there so they probably been coming all along but then they just didn't have time to develop and make it mm-hmm. until about the late the late 80s and then all of a sudden the traffic was increased there's more shipping there's more faster boats mm-hmm. Then they got here, and then those ballast waters were full of the, the, the larvae. Because imagine if you can get from Europe to you know the Great Lakes in less than two weeks, mm-hmm. and the larvae are still swimming around, it's, and you dump all those ballast, ballast water, water yep. there they are. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. And then didn't take very long at all from the Great Lakes to go throughout the, yeah. North America. I mean, they're they're pretty much everywhere except for the north extreme northwest. Yeah. They're even up into Canada and mm-hmm. all the way south to New Orleans, and I mean, they're they're just everywhere now. So where they are, is there any getting rid of them for the department, or are they kind of there? They're there. Once they're here to stay, I mean, that's a bad thing when you get an invasive species come in. I mean, you, they're here to stay. Yeah, and that's, and, so uh, we're kind of in the trying to save where they aren't right now, trying right. to prevent them from moving. So that's the messaging is that's why it's don't dump bait, and that's why it's clean your boats, and that's why we're telling people about zebra mussels and moss balls because we're just trying to prevent them from being spread or any faster than they absolutely right. have to right right and so so you know one of the things we're going to be doing this winter before they have the larvae in the water is getting some signs up there at williamstown lake to you know hey there's the zebra mussel waters so make sure you know you mm-hmm. drain your everything clean your boats and all that stuff and before you go to somewhere else and and then you now the good thing about williamstown lake is a lot of the boats that are there are up out of the water right now mm-hmm. so they're not like establishing on the boats there's just a very few and, and uh, most of the people have lifts up there uh, but but they are there uh, we're going to keep an eye on them the next couple of years to make sure they don't get any worse uh, and hopefully you know if, <clears> if they do maybe we can take some action uh, you know there's some things you can do chemicals are not a good ideal usually but you know zebra mussels can handle freezing so so, you know, draining the lake down a little bit and letting them freeze and killing them is a, is a possibility then down the road. Uh, we'll see what happens to them and watch them for a little bit. So, I guess, yeah, I guess drain, drawing the lake down. Like if you did a drawdown like you do at Barron where you expose <laughs> half the bottom. <laughs> you Barron know, is free, a Then you could, uh, you could kill all the mussels that are on that part, but you'd still have ones that are in the channel, I'm sure, in the, in the area that's underwater. But you could reduce the population by maybe 50% every every. Well, you gotta, you got to get rid of them all. Or, or, yeah, you don't, or they're you know, going to be back. Yeah, you just kind of keep them at a low level. But, but again, uh, a lot of these lakes have, you know, a thermocline. You know, they have the cold water dead zone. Mm-hmm. 
So basically, when you drop your lake down, you get it below that. Mm-hmm. And that way, anything that's living during the summer is nothing below that. Mm-hmm. So you want to just drop it down until you hit that level, and then that pretty much takes care of them. Okay. Hmm. Well, that makes perfect sense. How long does it take for one to go from that swimming larvae to a inch-long adult like you were talking about? Less than a year. Less than a year. Wow. So they, one yeah, year. They're, they're, they're really prolific. They grow really fast. Um, they, they grow super fast compared to even freshwater mussels and uh and so they can they can have a couple three generations in one year uh, once they get established. Uh, the ones that I saw on Williamstown Lake were full grown adults. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, well they could have been just last year. Last year, yeah. I, I don't think, based on what I saw, that that they're. I mean, they could have been there a year before that, but I didn't see but one year class. So they could have come in, you know, the year before, probably twenty twenty one. It looks like to me. Makes sense mm-hmm. when everybody was doing all the recreating during COVID. Shut mm. down. A lot of boat traffic. Yep. I'm trying to see here. So one, uh, this is off the topic of zebra mussels, but can people eat freshwater mussels? I've heard that that's not a good idea at all. Well, I mean, you can eat freshwater yeah, mussels. I've heard they won't be good, though. I've heard that there's grit to well, the sand. They, they they filter sand particles as well, yeah. so you're going to be crunching a little bit of sand. Yeah, see, that doesn't t- sound and good then, to me. Uh, I think I'll just stick with oysters. Yeah. What do you think? And, and, or, and then again, you know, well, most of the oysters that people eat, have been purged for a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. you know, in captivity mm-hmm. before they're eating eating live. So they kind of clean themselves up a little bit. And, and uh, but but freshwater mussels, uh, you know, like I said, there there's not as much nutrition to them as as the oysters would have. But again, you know, you're going to eat a lot of sand. Uh, uh, I don't see. I don't like the taste of sand. I don't, I don't like either. the texture. But I've also heard that uh, salt water um, kind of reduces the amount of bacteria that's just in things naturally so fresh water you know might be a whole lot more bacteria in that in a freshwater mussel than there would be in a saltwater mussel anyway just because of the saltwater aspect of it so they might not even be safe to eat like a uh, De- definitely not anything raw i mean yeah i've heard uh, you don't want to eat any raw fish out of fresh water like you do salt water well i mean even even raw anything raw has got yeah. all kinds of viruses and bacteria and that's the thing that i've learned over the years of my work in freshwater biology uh you look under the microscope and you see all this all stuff right. that's in these animals. Yeah, you're cooking your fish. You don't want to eat anything raw. Yeah. You probably spend more time looking through a microscope than you know, just about anybody in the department, I'd have to guess. We spend a lot of time looking at the microscope. Because you're looking at zooplankton, I'm sure you're looking at all the smallest organisms. We do. We look at the bacteria, the, 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 the algae, and then anything that's crawling around and swimming in the water. And in fact, it's pretty neat because it's a whole different world that's there and and the people that don't have a clue i mean most people don't know about mussels anyway mm-hmm. but the stuff that's crawling around and swimming in the water uh is pretty pretty neat i, I went down to last a couple of years ago down to laurel river lake and mm-hmm. and uh, i wanted to swim with the jellyfish and get some pictures and stuff and because i hadn't really you never said last done that. week no last couple of years oh okay i was like, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like it's gold morning no, i'm not getting <laughs> a wetsuit <laughs> yeah. i've but seen anyway, him in a wetsuit so, so i wanted one. i wanted to go take some some fit some pictures and some video of some yeah. jellyfish that we have freshwater jellyfish so it's kind of neat to see they're fairly large you can see those really but but these other organisms that are tiny that are living in the water there's all kinds of things that people have never even seen or heard of mm-hmm. in fact there's a lot of things that are that are kind of new to science and so there's a whole other world going on out there when you just look at the water. And that's why when you when you go to a lake or a river or, and you see conditions, you know, you got to think, okay, there's a micro world going on that, that's driving it all. Mm-hmm. And so when you start messing with that by adding the zebra mussels and it starts messing with that ecosystem, 
then you you're, you're changing the ecosystem up to the fish yeah and so it really affects it and it takes time for that to happen so that's why it's so important to keep our muscle populations really healthy because healthy muscle populations produce healthy fish populations mm-hmm. and they're and they're closely related yeah. so people so the, probably don't think the more it. muscles the better fishing right and and the muscle population the current muscle population i can go look at a muscle population and when i look at it i, I can go wow six years ago the fish population must have been amazing because that's what they need to be able to reproduce and there's lots of them mm-hmm. so six or seven years ago i can look back and say the bass population must have been amazing this year okay. because I know that's the host for this muscle and it's thriving. Mm. So it's really, it's kind of a look back in the past by looking at the current population of mussels and it, it really tells us. But at the same time, if we don't see any young mussels, then I'm going like, wow, something's going on with mm-hmm. this bass population, for yeah. instance, over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. There's not enough of them to be able to keep this muscle population thriving. So it kind of goes both ways. So mussels are kind of an indicator species for water quality, but also for like fish population numbers exactly what what else could mussels tell us well i mean i mean the main thing is the health of the stream health of the overall health we do not see any endangered mussels in a polluted stream okay Mm. Uh, so and the the more we see the more species of endangered mussels we see the healthier that stream is so you've already said how important the green is and how significant it is for fishing it also has 17 endangered mussels that yeah. are living in the you know living mm-hmm. in the ritter at some point. So it's amazing that if you can look at that and say, "Wow, all these rare animals are living in a thriving fish population." So those go right together, and and so I think people need to make that connection to you know clean, healthy water, good mussel populations, good fishing, all that goes right together tell me about our uh, league you can go but i was going to just ask you to tell me about water quality over the past you know because i think of siltation i think we built all these dams and that's what affected a lot of our fish numbers because mm-hmm. things like the paddlefish that need to let their eggs tumble you know the silted up bottoms mm-hmm. and the slow rivers kind of put an end to that and that's why a lot of fish numbers are dropping but is it siltation from dams or is it just pollutants going in the water chemicals and heavy metals how has that looked over the past century or so ever since the mussels yeah. went declining well i mean go back to about 1820 1830 mm-hmm. that's when all the dams were starting to be built in kentucky and around the country uh you know there's there's seventy five thousand dams in north america yeah. Wow. And that number, is that number going down or up right now? Well, there's be going there a few, few that are coming. There's not a lot of new dams that are going up, but there are some that are coming out. We've yeah. had, in fact, the Green has had three come out in the last six or yeah, seven Yeah, I wanted years. to ask you about that. I just wrote a piece yeah. on that in Barron River number one. But, yeah, yeah. I was, I was kind of curious what the water quality has looked like and, and how that's related. So it went from pristine is where we started. Or not pristine, but, you know, where it was supposed to be. And then, so tell me about that drop and are we coming up? Well, I mean, I want just think about all the things that have happened in the last couple hundred years. You know, industries develop. Mm-hmm. The Industrial Revolution, yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of chemicals that are dumped in the water. In fact, 150 years ago, the the slogan around was the solution to pollution is dilution. So this dump everything in the water, and if it's enough that's water, the most ridiculous thing. Yeah, I've no. ever heard. <laughs> that's, 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 that's what people thought was okay. <laughs> that's that's one pollute more, and that gets rid of pollution. <laughs> <Yes>. And so, <laughs> so. You know, that was the philosophy, and people use the rivers as their conduits for getting rid of any toxic waste. And then, you know, the more and, and more. That mindset you still see. In oh, it, it, it we wonder why cancer is, you know. Well, let's throw our refrigerator in the creek, you know. I mean, and, and in fact, in fact, I, I encourage everyone to look at where they're drinking their water from their house, where that water comes from. I ask this to kids all the time. 
where do you get your water from? And they say from the sink. And I was like, yeah, but where, how does it get to your sink? Yeah. And, you know, I'm making that connection. Mm-hmm. And so you tap it back and it comes from some river or some lake and then say, okay, we'll look and see what kind of water chemistry that lake has. Water problems there. And there's always some kind of toxic chemical mm-hmm. that's in that lake. Maybe it's at a really small level, but who's to say, you know, muscles bioaccumulate that stuff. And mm-hmm. so we can too. And there's a lot of harmful. I mean, we live in a toxic world. I mean, yeah. well, I've heard, I, yeah. I don't mean to cut you. I heard recently, this is something that I probably heard within the last month that I thought was kind of, you know, I hate it. It's a sad reality, but they used to dump Teflon in the rivers. Yep. That um, PFAS is yeah. the new thing. And that they can't find a control. No, they can't find a person that doesn't have Teflon in their system already, you know, to as a control to test against. Can't find somebody. We all have Teflon in us, you know. So at this point, it's just pretty much it's in every, all the water. It's in right. everybody. And, and these PFAS, you know, that's the new thing. These polyvinyl alkalins or something, you know, they're, they're, they're in, they're in Teflon. They're in um, microwave popcorn. They're in uh, the stain-resistant treatments for carpeting and furniture. I mean, they're everywhere. And they went to Alaska and looked at some of the Inuits that eat so much, you know, from the ocean and from fresh water and uh, their their levels of PFAS were off the charts. Yeah, and there and there's other so things. I mean, there's there's uh there's places in this world today that I've been in where you walk in and you turn over a rock and there's little balls of mercury. Yeah. And you know, nothing can live there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's just there's a lot of things out there that harm us. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm out studying these freshwater mussels, if I see a lot of healthy mussel populations, mm-hmm. I know that this is the best water we've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I go to places where I don't see any mussels, mm-hmm. this is usually not a good thing, especially when 150 years ago it used to be thriving here. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really good indicator for us of the health of the stream and the health of the system. And, you know, and it comes back to the health of us. I mean, you know, people get cancer and, yeah. you know, we don't know why mm-hmm. sometimes how that links. And, you know, toxic chemicals and the air we breathe and things we eat. You know, those things affect us up, yeah. bad. I was thinking about that the other day about, you know, cancers. I mean, I, it's really sad, but you, you almost should expect at some point in your life to have to deal with it, you know, either personally or someone close mm-hmm. to you because that's just where we're at. And I was thinking about it's so obvious that if you look at the Industrial Revolution and everything we dumped in the water and the everything we've done to the air, like, I mean, people act like they don't know the cause for cancer, but I'm just look around and look at what's changed. It's pretty obvious. And I, for some reason, even though this is probably off topic, it came down to gluttony for me. I was thinking yeah. of the seven deadly sins, and and I was thinking about gluttony and kind of just you know. And we just had our uh, luncheon or breakfast yesterday. Where, yeah. where I had gluttony. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's like we just it kind was of good. The people are afraid of a, a grizzly bear or something like that. That grizzly bear is never going to hurt. No, no. Somebody but, like. But the if pollution. you eat Big Macs five times a week, then yeah. that's something to be worried about more than a grizzly yeah. bear getting you. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy to me, but you know, it's uh, there's it's hard to say there's any turning back. But are we doing any better than we were back in the '60s and '70s? Because well, I mean, I, I think I think in some places, you know, we have improved. Uh, you know, the the, the clean, clean water, the Clean Act Water Act in the '70s uh, really helped us be aware of things that we were doing that were harmful to people, and you know, it just takes time and uh, for people to finally catch on to that. You know, when you first put a restriction. Like, you can't dump this because it creates this level of chemical. People, you know, well, I've done it for years, and, and, and that's this kind of the mentality people have. And mm-hmm. So it takes some time to educate and, like, you know, look, small amounts can bioaccumulate and hurt you at some point. Mm-hmm. And so we need to 
quit doing that and, and mediate for things that where we've harmed the water and stuff. And then, you know, over time, I have seen some improvements. The green is a green is that great example. You know, we have over 70 species of mussels there, 150 species of fish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're improving the habitat by taking the dams out. We're, we're maintaining water quality by helping riparian zone protection. Uh, really careful about you know what goes into the water you know there's there's watershed groups out there that mm-hmm. report spills you know just people are more aware of this stuff and as a result of this things are better in some places and in some places they're not and then and, and around the world i mean some countries don't care and mm-hmm. uh unfortunately i hate to say that but you know they're more important about economic development than they are about harming the environment yeah. and you know and, and i think that's where we were years ago mm-hmm. and and I, I don't think it was necessarily intentional sometimes mm-hmm. But I think in the early 1900s, people were trying to survive, you know, the depression and, mm-hmm. and you know, and, you know, we got some kind of new chemicals that are a plant or something and it's DDT prospering. <laughs> yeah, DDT is a perfect example. You know, we're trying to kill mosquitoes and, yeah. but at the same time, you know, the eagles are dying. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, there's got to be a balance and a mix in there. You know, we don't want to hurt ourselves. And, and so I think, I think that's why I enjoy studying muscles so much is because I feel like they directly relate to our health of our drinking we, water. You know, Wendell... Wendell Hogg, uh, your colleague, he did that muscle silo uh, study. And I know uh, Mark Marasini, our co-worker, his son was involved in the Eagle Scout project helping to build these. And it was fascinating because they put juvenile mussels in these little concrete things and put them in different streams across the state. And some, that they grew great. And someone that I've always, you know, I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but Drake's Creek looks like it should be one of the best smallmouth streams we have in the state. Yet the mussels in Drake's Creek didn't grow at all in a year. Is that correct? Yeah, there there were several several that, streams that, that we had that we had like seven or eight different streams that we honestly couldn't figure out why they didn't grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are other places where they were you know three or four times the size. Yeah. And I'm talking about putting a mussel in that's a quarter of a quarter of an inch, mm-hmm. and then coming back three or four months later and they're you know an inch long yeah and in some places you put them in a quarter inch and you come back and they're barely surviving and they're not grown any hmm. so what's the cause of that we're trying to figure that out in fact this project dr Haig and i are working together on uh it's national now we've got sites in north carolina and uh, tennessee hmm. and is wendell here in kentucky State? yeah he's at our office he, okay. he's been in okay. our office since 2014 okay i didn't know if we, yeah. we collaborate together he's basically a visiting scientist that we that we house at our office uh, we work together on project. We raise all the muscles for his silo projects. Um, and, you know, this is something that he, we can learn from. And, he had and, a tremendous textbook that came out as well as the distributional atlas, too. He's produced some, y'all have done some tremendous work along those lines. Yeah, we, we've been working really well together. He's with the U.S. Forest Service, but, but we collaborate on a lot of projects. Uh, and, you know, just trying to get a better handle on on our ecosystems and how how it relates to and and the muscles are our easiest way to do that because that's what we we know how to study <laughs> yeah that makes I mean, if you got a great indicator species i mean so you probably work hand in hand with the division of water quite a bit too then right we do a little bit i mean in fact a couple of our staff that used to work for me are actually now employees there at division of water so so you know division of water you know they do a lot of monitoring all over the state and so mm-hmm. some of our silo sites for instance mm-hmm. are places where they monitor is your, that continuing you know, are y'all still doing that? we're still doing some silo projects yeah we've we've got that that's project started in 2015 mm-hmm. and so we've been doing it every year and then uh and then, you know, like I said, I think next year Dr. Haig has got a project in Arkansas, Missouri. So he's expanded it, you know, a little bit. And But we're still trying to zero in on what's 
what's causing things, you know, not to grow in some of these streams. Which one did, did the best? Which stream did they exhibit the most growth? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I mean, there were several that, that did really well. I mean, one surprising stream was Eagle Creek up in the Tucky yeah. River system. They did really well there. Now, that species is also that we raised in the silos. It was native to Eagle Creek, too. So, But, you know, they did fine in, you know, in the Licking River. And, yeah, I thought and the, the Licking did really the, well. The green. And, you know, a lot of it is sometimes it's it's food and temperature that changes a little bit. So if you put them in a colder stream, they're not going to grow as fast because there's not enough food and they don't grow as fast at colder temperatures. And so some of it was issue of temperature and other things were, you know, the water chemistry wasn't right. Uh, so that's stuff we learned from this. We know, oh, well, this is the reason this is so good is because the things that are in the minerals that are in the water and the foods in the water is there. And, mm-hmm. and or maybe it's always been kind of a closed mouth stream up there. People, there's sections that have really good smallmouth populations. But, man, people are tight lipped about it. It was closed mouth <laughs> until Lee came on the podcast. <laughs> hey, I, I've already I published an article about it a long time ago. So say someone was interested in water quality of a stream. Is there a, a place that they could go and kind of get a detail, a report, or just an overview of a certain stream? Say I wanted to see Green River. I mean, is there somewhere I could go and kind of see a trends trends in Green River over time or current levels? I mean, there, you know, there, there are websites out there uh, that – uh, watershed watch groups. Yeah, there's the Kentucky River watershed. Yeah, watershed. so each, yeah. each each watershed has has some some kind of group that usually is focused on that. So aspect. I don't know if the Division of Water put out reports or they do. Them. They put out reports on, on on you know status of our water water. And they quality. do the, like fully supporting, partially supporting, they non-supporting. Do. That's yeah, that's can, Division of Water. You correct? can get on their you can get on their website and you can see like where areas in the state are fully supporting where you know our outstanding state resource waters. Uh, we also see the problem areas too, so so you can get on there and look, and then you know the internet's great for stuff like that because you can you can access a lot of things that you couldn't access you know thirty years ago, mm-hmm. or even you know later. But uh, but there are, you know I would encourage people to get with their local watershed groups and watch groups and and you know get and participate with them. They can go out and learn how they train you on how to sample water and then test it and then. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see a problem and you can report it. And then all of a sudden the experts can zero in on trying to figure out what's going on and, mm-hmm. you know, report spills when you see them. Uh, you know, just little stuff like that, you know, is really, really important. For You know, we can't look at it all at one time. But if everybody's out there doing their part, you know, and, and you know, just good example. You know, I saw this report years ago where when you change your oil out in your yard, <laughs> Uh, I saw a report in, in Detroit, Michigan, which is, you know, big car capital. You know, there was over a million gallons of oil just poured down on the ground hmm. a year. Yeah. For people changing their oil. For people yeah. changing their oil. And so, you know, you don't think about, you know, so I, I'm sure everyone is just saying, well, it's just a little bit. Yeah. But no. when you add it up. Oh, my God. That's... It adds up. You know, it ends up. Where does that what, where does that go? It gets in the groundwater and all of a sudden it's being pumped back and you're drinking it. So, it you know, just be careful about things and, you know, follow good good standard protocols and not... Just just because you can dump it on the ground doesn't mean you should. I mean, and so it's really important that we we just aware of of the pollutants that are out there. And I mean, mm-hmm. you go look under your sink in your kitchen. There's a lot of toxic chemicals there, and when you dump them anywhere, yeah. it can be a problem. So you know, we didn't. You know, 200 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yeah. You know, 200 years ago, people were, you know, the the fecal coliform, the bacteria from from your feces and things like that were the most important. You know, pollutant. And then all of a sudden, these harmful chemicals started being developed, and and you know it's just we just live in a different world than we did, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. two hundred years ago. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. Well, you and I were down on uh, muscle release on the Big South Fork, 
and I think we've talked before, there were people that used to pull out before the National River uh, Recreation Area designation. They'd pull out in the river, <laughs> take off that bolt, let that oil pan drain, <laughs> and put it back right in the middle of the river. They changed the oil in the river. Changed the oil in the river. Yeah. I've heard that from several people that that was the sad. case. I always just uh, put it in a oil pan and take it to AutoZone. Yeah, yeah and, and dump it a, in the recycler. Yeah, they have a disposal thing there for me, and that's what I would do with it personally. <laughs> that's I mean, what I and, do. And then it gets reused. That's recycled. That's exactly what I do as well. Yeah. And so some people just need to be aware of, you know, little things like that. And, you know, you know, there's there's point source pollutants that can, that can hurt things, and then there's, you know, runoff pollution or not point source. And so there's a lot of different kinds of pollutant sources. And you already mentioned earlier about, you know, you know, uh, you know, siltation, mm-hmm. you know, when you spray a, a field with some chemicals, some herbicide or, or and then it, all of a sudden it rains, where does that go? It goes right straight to the river. Mm-hmm. And so just being smart about things, I think, is, is, is a way that we need to approach, you know, pollution in general. You know, you know, people, it's a lot easier to go out and spray some Roundup on their yard mm-hmm than it is to go out there and cut the grass and so mm-hmm. and so that's you know we, we kind of get you know that all that gluttony makes yeah. us lazy and then that's, people don't want to get out there and work my, anymore my sister-in-law spent all this money planting trees but she didn't want a weed eater around she, she sprayed around up around to kill the weeds and killed all her expensive trees oh, cool. <laughs> About a, a couple of years ago or a year and a, a year ago something like that kristen started getting on more of a, a health kick and so she started paying more attention to what we were eating and ingredients and things like that and so she's always tried to educate me and she's done a pretty good job but you know all the information she's bombarded me with you'd be amazed at how bad like i mean just the average person who doesn't think about it i mean how bad the daily life probably is with intake you know Mm -hmm. as far as uh food and and drinks and just uh, the pollution that that's going on and uh, some of it's scare tactics too i will say that because these companies that make these, you know, organic non-GMO. They're trying to make money, so they're pushing that same oh, propaganda yeah. to try to get you to buy. So you kind of got to be able to see through the, you know, the stuff on both sides of it and try to figure out what the truth actually is. But I just feel like the average person who's just kind of going through their daily life, not paying attention to it, is probably taking in more harmful things than they could than they would ever be okay with if they if they really thought about it. Well, well, you know, I, my my wife, uh, you know, three years ago was diagnosed with breast cancer, and and so you know, going through chemotherapy, you, you know, you, you realize the stuff that gets in your body and how it affects you so bad, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, almost kills her, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then uh, so when she gets done with all this chemo and everything, and she's in remission now, uh, you know, she goes on a really really healthy diet, mm-hmm. and then and you know, she can't hardly eat some of this bad food anymore oh, because she's crazy. eaten so healthy for so long. It's crazy. Well, so it, it just, it just shows it just shows you, you know, when you when you eat something unhealthy, you know, it makes you feel bad. But you know, we're we're you know, it's it's expensive to eat healthy. I mean, in the it world and, and expensive to it's eat anything pain. anymore. Especially when you're traveling. It's a real pain. It is, it is. and and we you know, I think COVID didn't help a lot of stuff and you you had to, you know, people were going through drive throughs and mm-hmm. eating fast food, which you know is not healthy oh, for you and I'll be honest with you, I think COVID helped us um, because we would go out to O'Charlie's and I'd get the, the, the sampler that came with, you know, all this fried <laughs> food. And, and, and so I would go out to eat a lot and that's where I'd kind of splurge. But then when I started having to cook more on my own, that's when I think I started eating healthier. Because mm-hmm. yeah. cooking on your own, I mean. It's the best way to go. Yep. It does take time. You know, it's kind of the value of time. Garden, good. Garden, good. I don't have a garden. I wish I did. But yeah, It's we, so great to go out and get fresh tomatoes and yeah, fresh cucumbers just, and stuff. It's great. But well, de- that, that, that that relates to 
to uh, the way we we take care of muscles by the way uh, so we have kind of this aquaculture philosophy you know fresh made food is the best and these our animals do the best when we when we raise our own food and feed them fresh daily so the next step is refrigerated and then finally frozen or dried in that in that you know and then preserved so we want to feed our animals that we're raising the freshest food possible because it's healthier for them so we we use the same principle when we're raising these rare mussels of feeding them you know just like we should the way the food we eat the fresher we eat the food Mm-hmm. the better it is for us and then that's the same way with these muscles and they and they respond and so we have to culture our own food for our animals mm-hmm. and and do all this this stuff that's you know cutting edge technology as well mm-hmm. there was a restaurant here that had a chicken tenders that i liked and i never paid attention i just knew they were tasty and then that's the whole meal i looked up it's 128 grams of fat <laughs> Two thousand something calories, sodium off the charts, you know. And I'm, chickens don't have that much fat. No, no, but <laughs> this did. I know. Yeah, all the other gunk yeah. that made it taste good. But yeah. I mean, then you'd feel like you drank some in after you ate it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask: How is the little wing pearly mussel? Yeah, what's its status? What is this? First of all, because this I don't is know. a very rare mussel that used to. Is it still in Buck Creek, or is it extirpated? From it Buck is Creek? not found in Buck Creek anymore. It's been probably thirty, forty years since it's been seen in Buck Creek. Uh, it's disappeared from the Rockcastle River as well over the last twenty years. Uh, the only place left that's really found in Kentucky slash Tennessee is is the upper part of the Cumberland River system. Uh, it's like the Big South Fork. Yeah. Uh, there's basically one or two places left that this animal's living. Uh, uh, are we trying to? Have you propagated it? We've before? been we have propagated them to a, ver, a very low number. The problem with this, this is a really small animal. It's less than about an inch, yeah. and the the larvae that it has are very large. In fact, it's the largest one of the largest larvae of North American mussels. And it's a little, but muscle. it's the tiniest mussel. <laughs> so that means they produce fewer, much fewer. So one, to give you an example, one little winged pearly mussel may have four or five hundred larvae, mm-hmm. compared to a. Uh, pink market which have 150,000 so i only have 500 to work with and they're they're hard to find uh so so maybe one year i might be able to find three or four Mm. so and i'm if i have a female then i might have a thousand larvae and so you get about 10 percent of those that that can survive have we put them in other places We've we've not been able to raise them successfully yet because we can't get enough females to work with. Okay. So one of the one of the strategies for that species is for the next two or three years is to try to raise a hundred of them and have fifty females in captivity. And then two or three years later, you would have fifty females to work for. That's about the only way we're going to be able to work. Mike with Strunk this. told me they're hypersensitive to siltation or any any change in the water. Correct. They, they are one of the probably most sensitive <clears throat> freshwater mussels we have in this country. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of species that live in that in the Cumberland River system. Uh, the the Cumberland River system, which flows you know from eastern Kentucky down to Tennessee and back into Kentucky, it has some of the most endemic species of aquatic species anywhere in the world. Uh, there's a lot of species there uh, that only live there. And it's a lot different water chemistry than compared to, like, the Kentucky River or the Green or the Ohio River system. You know, it's just it's, it's a mountain stream water in the headwaters, and it comes out nice and clean. It's low alkalinity. It's got really good water chemistry. And as a result, there's a lot of of interesting fish and, and animals that live there and only there. Uh, but at the same time, when you start... It doesn't take much to pollute that area either. Mm-hmm. And so we've lost a lot of species that used to live in the upper Cumberland 
but that's one of the species, the little wing pearly mussel that were that were really. Some of the literature I read, it sounded like it was still in Buck Creek, and I talked to Mike. He goes, "Lee, I just don't think it's here." But no, it's it hasn't. There was only <clears> one <throat> record in Buck Creek back in the 1980s. One one specimen. Hmm. So even then, it was almost gone 40 years ago. Uh, but the Rock Castle, they were in um, Horselick Creek, the upper yeah. part of the Rock Castle. There's been issues with that creek. And, correct. And, I mean, it's that's one of those that. That was that, a pristine that stream. That really looks beautiful if you go out there and just physically look at yeah, it. No, but the water is not right. Mm-hmm. And so we're still trying to figure that one out. You know, why did they disappear? What happened to Wendell it? Wendell told me there was some issues where, you know, there's cross, a, some cross-contamination maybe from another stream. Through yeah, and, and and, right. And so so really the only, there's only one or two places left in the world that we can really work with the little wing pearly mussel. And so we're, we're, we've got efforts to try to work with it, and we've been trying to work with it over the last few years. But... It's just been really tough. Now, now we've tackled other species in the Upper Cumberland in the last four or five years and been fairly successful. Uh, the, the last year, for instance, we were able to create a new formula for the in vitro culture for the Cumberlandian comb shell. Yeah, we put some of those out that day and we tan did. riffle shell, if I can remember right. We too. did, and but that species is one that we've had trouble with too. Tan riffle shell and, and the Cumberlandian comb shell, but. We have technology now, so we had, you know, the, the, our, our basic formula in the media did not work for that species until last year, 2021. So just within two years of me getting a formula wow. that we're, we've already released 12,000 of them. Cumberlandian comb shells? That's great. Last year, the 2022, we They're released danger, over, tw- yes, we released over 12,000 uh, or eight to 10,000. I can't remember the exact number. We do several thousand, and then we have that many more to put in next year. So what we're going to do for the Cumberland comb shell, for instance, is we're going to, we're going to put a couple thousand at every riffle that's available for the habitat in the current range. And we're going to get that population back to where it needs to be All right. in, in two cool. years. That's and, awesome. And so we're going to try to do that with these other species. We've got Carmel Elk Toe, which is down to just a very few populations uh, in the Tribs. And we've got a couple thousand of those that we've raised. Uh, the, the Cat's Paw, we've already released over 5,000. That's, mm-hmm. that's taken us 10 years. Uh, but we've got another four or five thousand to go out next year, and then That's so awesome. over the next three or four or five years, we might end up with twenty thousand of those that we put out. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking from a population of less than fifty That's in cool. the world. Wow! So That's I mean, that's the kind of numbers we're making differences well, with. That, with, with just, and you know, there's just some, you just keep going to the next species, and we're marking with multiple ones at the same time. What about the ring pink? My first assignment was with you and Leroy Coke. Yep. And we went to Middle Green down a little bit above Mufferville, and looked for the ring pink. Well, the ring pink, we've only found five live animals in 20 years yeah. in the green. And that's the only place pretty much that they're found. Yeah. So the last one was found uh, just about three years ago. Uh, it was a male, and it died of old age. Um, they live about 30 years, 35 years. So there probably is a few of them left in the green, and we are searching for them. We are looking very hard for these. We've got monitoring sites all over the green. Have you ever found a young one? Or they all been old. We have found some young ones. Well, that's that's a sign. But only that. one, and hmm. uh, but still. I mean. But there's there, there's a good chance that there's one or two of them out there. If we can find a few, I think we What's can raise host fish. Do we do not know the host fish, but we have techniques that we don't have to worry about that right away. Okay. So how do you how do you sex a mussel? Well, some of them the the shells look different. Okay. Uh, but basically, uh, the rest of them you just you just kind of open them up a little bit, and you look for um, the 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 gills the gills are where they hold their larvae mm-hmm. so you'll see them that they're full of e- eggs or or larvae mm-hmm. and you can tell uh, sometimes you can just take a needle biopsy and and look at the you know for the gametes uh, you know the sexual parts that are in the in the you know the eggs or the sperm 
but sometimes you can just look at the shell. The shells the shell. are different. On, like the ring pink is a good example. The males and females look different. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. You were talking about males and females, and I was sitting there thinking, I don't know if I could tell the difference. Yeah. And some of them you can't. Yeah. Is Leroy still active? Leroy's been retired for a couple of years now, and uh, but he comes over and and, uh, and comes and sees our facility, sees that kind of progress. He actually helped us. We had a tagging event back this fall where we tagged several thousand mussels down at Lake Cumberland because mm-hmm. uh, we have a new boathouse down there that we're working with with the U.S. Fish and Wild Service. So we basically we raise mussels in Frankfurt for about three or four months and take them to either Minor Clark Hatchery or to Lake Cumberland to our, our new boathouse, which we just started in 2021, and we grow them out there for another year. And so he came and helped us down at uh, Lake Cumberland and tagged several thousand mussels. We had about 20-something people that helped us. And that's the problem we we're running into, which is a good problem. So when we have 30,000 mussels to release mm-hmm. in a year, mm-hmm. we've got to tag every one of those. So Ooh. it takes some time to do that. That's mm-hmm. basically super gluing a piece of glitter, right? That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a certain color each year, and then next year we change the color. So that way we can go, for instance, I can take you to a site on the green in Mammoth Cave National Park. And I can show you like six different colors of this on the on the same species over the six, six years that we put them in. That's one of the, with the removal of Lockett Dam Five now, and to go along with Lockett Dam Six, what's that going to do to the the section in Mammoth Cave National Park? It's going to drop out even more now that Five's out, don't you think? Uh, it shouldn't drop out anymore in the upper part of the park for sure. Uh, it should stay fairly consistent. But what's going to happen is, for the first time in 110 years. Mm-hmm. A fish can swim from the Ohio River, yeah, up through the locks and of, of one and two, and and, and past three, and, then, and swim all the way to Green River Lake or to Green or the Barren River Lake. It's yeah. the first time in 110 years. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yes, it is. It's great as long as those Asian carp don't want to do it. Right now, well. Yeah, and and they and they have been through there. The Asian carp have made it through there, but that's not their habitat typically. Yeah, it's, that's clear water and you small know, too for them. Don't it is. It is. Colder it's still pretty big, but I mean, but what we're going to have is just imagine that the best river in the country for aquatic biodiversity, we're able to increase yeah. the habitat by miles yeah. in one yeah. year. That's yeah, what's happened cool. when we took these dams out. We have made the best river in the in in the world in the country better. better. Yeah, yeah. And, and just a couple of years. But yeah. I mean, I, I, strictly selfish reasons, I'd love to be want to paddle. Through Mammoth Cave, I, I wish they put a few more accesses in because who wants? It's hard to do a fourteen mile paddle. If you just want to go down for, for you, you got to look for the longest day of the year, whatever the summer equinox is. That's when. You're and, going. and 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 I think there is some plans uh, in the works to put a another boat access uh, downstream of Mumfordville before you get to the park. Okay, good. So deal. I think in the next couple years, three years, you'll have that shorter trip, and and especially now since there's, you know. Um, there's going to be more navigable water through there. Uh, it's just going to open up that. When they took out five, uh-huh. you know, the six, I, f- I floated over six after they removed it a few months afterward. And then they took five out and it dropped away out. Six became like white water again. They had to go back in and remove more of six. Yeah. So that part where the mouth of Nolan all the way up by Houchins Ferry and all that, that's going to become even more pool, riffle, and natural, correct? It will. It will. And then five is not all the way out yet. Yeah. So it still has about— Because of whether the, the water intake It is. still has a few more feet to go, uh, but locking down one on the Barrens out, mm-hmm. and it, it, so it's a riffle through there. I watched knock that out. So, I mean, so we've got some really—I mean, 
I know people. I know people like lakes a lot, but if you're a smallmouth fisherman, oh yeah, yeah, this is heaven. R- it's like, thank rivers, you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> rivers are amazing for smallmouth. <laughs> me flowing water all day. I, mm. I don't enjoy tubing that much. No, I don't either. I'm not a water skier. No. So give me. Uh, give I'm me a paddler, baby. You yeah, know it. Yeah, give me somewhere I can catch some fish. But so. then the uh, Barren River there, I'm really interested to see how that's above Lock and Dam one. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It's it, there's and there's a there's, there's a lot a, of muscles. Smallmouths are already starting to and go move in there well we we just to give you an example in 2016 when when lock six came out uh, and we went in in 2017 and we did it i was there remember when we went up you helped with the salvage yeah, yeah salvage the but we so. went in the next year and sampled the area in three spots where it was formerly impounded so this year we went back in uh and surveyed it again which would be a five-year period and we already saw recruitment of some of the endangered mussels in the area where was impounded so it's already recovering to I awesome. mean, just in that short amount of time i've already seen and so the sheep nose is in danger yeah the that, sheep nose that's it and so i saw two young sheep nose in the area that was six or eight feet ten feet deeper and the sheep nose uses the sauger so those mm. sauger are moving through there so you've probably got the best fishing report in the in the <laughs> state money <laughs> you tell me where the sauger <laughs> <moving laughs> no, tell me where the muscles are because there's gonna be something yeah. else yeah and, where where should i go catch sauger right so the, now? their their host fish is sauger yeah and the sauger tend you know they tend to you know the, the muscles that use the sauger are in the middle of the rivers and where the, where you typically might see the sauger in the little yeah. deeper water yeah. uh but you know when i say deeper water you know we're not t- talking about 25 30 feet deep we're yeah. only talking just a, six seven know, feet four, yeah there's shallow water it's, yeah. and it's still light the light can penetrate uh you know all the way to the bottom now where it couldn't mm-hmm. and so i think that's going to improve the productivity of the river uh it's just going to improve the habitat and you know the fish have to eat something Mm-hmm. And so they're going to go sit right on those muscle beds almost every time. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, when I'm snorkeling and, and filming underwater, I do some underwater photography with for for you know documenting muscles and stuff. You know, I'm swimming right next to the fish. Yeah, it's cool. And they come right up next to me <laughs> and are watching me. And it's pretty amazing, you know. I've, That'd be cool, like Sauger be right beside you. And, and I've even ha- I've even had some large fish, just you know, that are like what are you doing? just hit me, just run into me <laughs> underwater. Yeah. But I mean, I've I've swam by. Where they Walleye trying to move and sauger and and you know all kinds of darters and minnows and and you know bass and all, it's nothing for me to have a two or three four pound bass sitting right a smallmouth right next to me when I'm it when is I'm, I, I he's watching cool. he's watching me as I'm sampling <laughs> and, I'm, and I don't even pay attention to him and all of a sudden I look over there and watch, wow that's a nice fish yeah <laughs> and, it is weird how they aren't afraid of you when you're underwater unless you try to grab them if you try yeah, to touch them yeah. but they're afraid of you when they see you and you're walking on land or something you know it's just crazy to me how they're that somewhere. would be cool though be sitting there swimming oh it's and, and, and some places like some places that where you can see really well when the water's clear like in the springtime you know i can see a lot more fish and you, you know they get in their spawning colors and, yeah. and i mean it's just a it's just such a different world on the bottom of a river you know yeah. and and you, you know, these we have so many colorful darters and you know these minnows that br- that brighten up their colors in the spring yeah. i mean it's just you know I, I i've shown pictures of people you know these little orange and blue and green darters, and they'll go like that. Where'd you get? The, you go to the tra- Bahamas to see that? Yeah, and I'm going like, no, this was in Kentucky. I got that in Green River. Yeah, yeah, these are in your backyard, and, and uh, it's feel, pretty amazing. I feel motivated to go swimming right now at the bottom of it, but I feel like it's not this be time of year. At least, probably <laughs> got at least five months. This old man gave him a map of the area where Lock and Dam was on Barron, and he said he had a. It's really cool. This he was really knowledgeable out there. He said there was a waterfall. Like about a mile and a half above Lock and Dam One, and he had arrows pointing waterfall, and we looked at the satellite, and there is a some kind of you know big boulders or something there. I'm dying to see what 
if that's yeah. anything at all. But I thought that was cool. Well, he, I, he had told me the same thing. And so I pulled up Did, an is old any? map from like the 1800s. And, uh, and it did show something like there was a gradient there. So, hmm. Like so, a, some kind of Yeah, some kind of, I don't or, know if it's a waterfall as much as more just a rapid, yeah. you know, a pretty quick rapid fall. And uh, But, I mean, it's amazing. That, uh, I'd you, like to see that come out again. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It, it's existing again. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, those natural barriers are just, you know, highlight places to go fish. And, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, oh, I was and, then, and then right above these places, typically, these riffles and stuff, you know, right above these riffles and right, you know, right around the runs and stuff that, you know, they're a little bit deeper, but not, you know, a little bit of turbulent water, but not rapid. You know, that's where the mussels are at. And that's where the so, fish are. Yeah, that's, that's where, where they're the fish at. Are. Yep. I, I paddle slack water. I'm looking for, I'm mm-hmm. looking for something with some flow. Yeah. But I burn. Yeah. If it's a big, long hole, I burn that because yeah. I'm getting to where the fish are. Yeah. Well, guys, we've been going for uh, quite a while here. What do you, I think we've probably taken enough of money's time. So. <laughs> I could go on another hour. Yeah, we, we, could talk, we could talk about fishing and mussels. <laughs> oh, I'd love to. Water and I mean that's just something I've been glad for, I was for dying to know about the ring pink because I think that's fascinating. Well, we are working on that. Does and Leroy we're still make we... his atlatls and uh, bows and stuff like he, he used does. To? He does. He does. Leroy was a malacologist for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah. But he also he made like primitive weapons. Yeah, the Adelau. Yeah, that's yeah. the one that's like basically a stick that acts Sticks as a over, lever, yeah. so you can launch a spear real fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen those before. But he, he's, he he's made he's made bows out of osage orange and yeah, and then and, and then, then you know even the string he makes and everything. It's, it's it's like, just, like like Native Americans. Oh, it's all artificial made from from one, one of these days. Stuff. I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a bow. Joe Lacefield has me interested in that because he makes his own too. Mm-hmm. You know and. I never have met the the fellow you guys were talking about, but yeah. I've kind of gotten. I want to try that, you know, just to go he used out. To give and, demonstrations up here at Salado. Remember they used to have those did. Native American days. He'd come up and give demonstrations. Leroy would. Yeah. Hmm. Well, guys, I appreciate it. I'm going to go Fascinating. ahead. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. Thanks, well, Monty. We well, appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to have to continue this conversation <clears throat> sometime, Monty, because I would like to talk just some fishing and hunting with you at some point too. Yeah, so. that's, that's always good. Yeah, I'm just afraid if I if this time code goes too long, nobody's going to look. They're going to look at it and say, "Oh, it's uh, two hours. No, I, don't, no, I don't have time." So. But, we're gonna but they them. can listen to it. And we're gonna we can put, do part one, part two. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll do it again, Monty, for sure. I, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, you guys have a happy holiday. Everybody uh, have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas, New Year's, and all that kind of thing. Try to stay cold. Try to stay not cold. It's going to be easy to stay yeah. cold. Stay warm. Stay warm. There you go. Thanks, Monty. <laughs>